You are listening to the Horse Radio Network, part of the Equine Network family. You know, I try to be quite understandable of situations. There's always somebody has to win and it can be always you. So the one thing I learned, you know, I like to watch a lot of the top, you know, sport people. They, they always have a lesson to share. And I watch, you know, this wonderful coach, you know, giving an interview. And I honestly didn't know who he was, but he, he gave an interview. And, you know, they asked him if he thought that, you know, this season that they didn't win the, the championship was a failure, you know. And he said, look, Michael Jordan played 11 seasons in the NBA and he only won six titles. Mm-hmm. Were the other mm-hmm. five failures? And he said they weren't. You know, uh, Tom Brady played about 12 seasons in, in yeah. the NFL. And he only won six titles. Was that a failure? So the reality, all those, you know, major successful sport people, they didn't win every single time they went to compete. And instead of, you know, taking that as a failure, they take it, they take that as a lesson, as a journey to the success. So whenever we're not winning, you know, as a team, I always think, okay, this has to be teaching us something. This is, you know, I don't like not to win, but I have to take the positive out of, you know, losing. And instead of calling it a failure, I call it, you know, the process to the win, the process to success. Welcome to the Practical Horseman podcast, featuring conversations with respected riders, industry leaders, and horse care experts. The show is co-hosted by Practical Horseman editors, and our goal is to inform, educate, and inspire. I'm Julia Murphy, and this week's episode is one of the top trainers in the United States and the owner and founder of Stonehenge Stables, Max Amaya. Born in Argentina, Max was exposed to show jumping at age nine by his grandfather and learned to ride under his tutelage. After moving through the junior ranks and onto the South American Grand Prix circuit, Max moved to Canada to work for Mario Delorier in 1992. Then, in 2000, Max made the final decision to relocate to the U.S., where he was introduced to Stacia Klein Madden and Frank Madden and joined the team at Beacon Hill Stables. During that time, Max got the ride on Church Road, a horse that he rode at the World Equestrian Games and the Pan American Games, and who he speaks lovingly about during our conversation. When he wasn't competing, Max brought his show jumping expertise to students at Beacon Hill and trained countless to success. In 2006, Max founded his own training business, Stonehenge Stables, which is located in Colts Neck, New Jersey. Stonehenge provides a range of training from short stirrup to Grand Prix with a foundation rooted in traditional equitation principles, skills that Max believes are what propels U.S. riders to such great heights. His students are ranked among the country's top riders in the junior, amateur, and professional divisions, with 19 ribbons won at major equitation finals, 10 ribbons at the North American Young Rider Championships, and four that have ridden on the United States equestrian team. Before we dive into the podcast, I'd like to thank the sponsor of this week's episode, Purina Animal Nutrition, and share their message. This podcast is sponsored by Purina Animal Nutrition, with three research-backed ration balancers to fill nutritional gaps in your horse's diet. Enrich Plus delivers a concentrated source of protein, vitamins, and minerals without unnecessary calories. Enrich Plus Senior features Active Age Prebiotic Technology and Outlast Supplement for Aging Easy Keepers. And Omega Match is rich in omega-3 fatty acids and vitamin E, great for horses without access to green grass. Find a ration balancer for your horse at PurinaMills.com 
forward slash ration balancers or visit your local feed store. Now, enjoy the episode with Max. Well, thank you so much for being with me today. I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. Yeah, no, it's my pleasure. Thank you. So let's dive right in. Um, my first question for you is just how did you get interested in horses and riding to begin with? Well, uh, I was born in Argentina mm-hmm. and my grandfather was in the army, you know, especially with horses. And just, you know, at an early age, my older brother, Victor, was uh, hanging out with him a lot. He was about probably nine, ten years old and I was just turning eight and I was a little bit afraid of horses. But, you know, just as a activity that we did with our grandpa, you know, I started going and then by the age of 11, 12, I started, you know, riding with him. I was quite timid about horses, but, you know, he just, you know, threw me right into it and that's how it was. And this was in Argentina? In Argentina, yes, in Buenos Aires. And so when did you make your way to the States? Well, when I finished high school, you know, my parents were very adamant about me going to college. So I kind of like follow what they wanted me to do for about five, six months into business school. And I just really did not like what I was doing. So I told my father that I wanted to leave and I wanted to go to the States. It was always a dream of mine since I was 14 years old to come to the States. So um, I dropped out of college and uh, I made my way to uh, Montreal, actually, to Bromont. And just by coincidence, I had a friend that was doing three-day event and he told me there was a nice show there, three-day event show and then mm-hmm. uh, a show jumping show. And... I just, you know, I really don't didn't have any idea what that was or anything, but I just got a ticket and some cash and off I went. And then I was lucky enough that I ended up with Roger Deloria, Mario Deloria's dad, and he gave me a job. Mm-hmm. And I was basically grooming, riding, doing all chores in the barn and trying to learn as much as I could from it. And uh, I stayed there for three years. Then I had to come back to Argentina for a brief time because my mother was sick. And then in 1999, I made myself back thanks to Joe Farges. He connected me with Beacon Hill and I made myself back to New Jersey and I've been there ever since then, 24 years. So when you connected with Joe Farges and you started at at Beacon Hill, was that around the time when you decided that you wanted to do this professionally? I was already doing it professionally. You know, when I decided to go to Canada, that's Mm -hmm. when I decided this was going to be my life. When I went back to Argentina for a few years, it was about four years. I worked for a very nice family, the Wertheins, and I was already getting paid. I mean, a professional. And then when I connected with Joe Farges for Beacon Hill, they were overlooking a farm very near their, their facility in New Jersey named Synergy Stables that was owned by the Diaco family. And they needed a rider, manager, trainer, and everything guy. And they had a very small group of horses, about 16 horses. They were not really competition horses. So I don't know, for some reason, I thought it was the right thing. Um, I liked, you know, Frank and Stacia Madden uh, when I met them. And, you know, they offered mm-hmm. me that that position there, you know, and I just took it. And then you went on to establish your own Stonehenge stables. Can you tell us a little bit more about that process and yes. uh, what brought you to opening that yourself, opening your own training program? You know, for some reason, I always, ever since I was, you know, young and I had a little bit of an idea of what I wanted to do, I always wanted to run my own business. I, I didn't know enough about the pro and the cons, but I just knew that I wanted to be 
my, my own person. So when I came, you know, I remember having conversations with, you know, Stacia and just telling her that, you know, my, my goal and my dream was to probably run my own facility at, at some point. And I didn't understand at the time, but I knew the sacrifice and the time that I had to wait. So basically in 2003, I met uh, Sarah Becker, which she had a horse named Church Road. And, you know, by coincidence, you know, she offered me the horse to jump in the Nations Cup in, in Wellington, Florida, and I accepted. And the horse was not a, a Grand Prix horse or anything. It was her um, amateur jumper that she very kindly offered it to me. And then mm -hmm. <clears throat> from, from then on, things went on because the horse was really a good, you know, match for me. It was probably a match of a lifetime. You know, he changed my career and my perspective mm -hmm. on the sport. And I went on for about three, four, almost four and a half years jumping him FEI. I was lucky enough that I went to World Championships in Germany in 2006, the Pan American Games 2007, a few Nations Cups and, you know, in Europe Tour and so on. So by the time that my career was taking off with him, I started feeling, you know, that it was starting to get to the time that I wanted to try to launch my business and see what happened. But you know, I was I, I was I was young, but not that young. You know, today they sometimes you know young professionals at the age of 23, 24, yeah. they embark on that. For me, you know, I was 32 years old, and I felt it was the right moment. You know, and I was already about seven, almost eight years, mm -hmm. you know, in, in New Jersey working for Synergy under you know the Beacon Hill umbrella. So anyway, it felt right, and the reason why you know I picked that moment is because. I just felt it was the right time. And how did that process go for you, building your own show farm, you know, from the ground up and, you know, getting business and creating this business for yourself? It, it was hard in a way, and it was somewhere easy because Synergy, the facility I was at, you know, was owned by, you know, a, a family that the wife wrote and didn't compete or anything. She just had it as a, you know, business, but more mostly a hobby that she had. And basically all the people that were there, that were just training with me and they probably 20% of them will see, you know, Beacon Hill at the shows. When I was with them, you know, they will probably do most of the training. But at the time I was already about uh, four and a half years working with Brion and Clementine Gutal. Mm -hmm. uh, there were other people there also that they were, you know, riding <clears throat> at Synergy with me. So when I decided that I wanted to open my own business, I tried to stay at the facility and offer some sort of, a, you know, uh, rental and, you know, participation to the owner. But she was, you know, quite wealthy. It wasn't interested on that. So, you know, anyway, they said that if I wasn't there, they probably will, you know, close down the place or not run it. So anyway, I end up you know, uh, teaming up with the Curcio family, Carolyn Curcio, which now resides in England, uh, mm -hmm. rode with me in the jumpers and rode with Beacon Hill in the equitation. And Bob and Barbara Curcio, her parents were really into the sport. And Bob, you know, being a, um, a developer, you know, himself, he said, oh, I'm going to buy a, a, a land and then build a farm however we want it. And so he did. <clears throat> he bought, you know, in Cold Snake, 26 acres, you know, in a beautiful, you know, cul-de-sac and we built a farm together, you know, obviously he funded it all and just put ideas and my experience into it. And it took about a year and then within a year we moved there and I started, I had about 44 horses, which was quite impressive at the time for me. Uh, I was really excited, but I didn't know a lot about business sense. So 
there were right. some uh, very rocky roads on the way. <laughs> and now, you, I mean, you've been doing this for a long time now, and you've been super successful, uh, not only riding, but also training and just having this incredible business. Um, so what is it that has kept you going in this sport for so long? Well, you know, the first thing is that I'm I'm always being driven. I'm always wanting to get better every day. I'm 49 years old, and I still feel like when I was 19, I I, I really want to do better. Um, <clears throat> I've been very lucky to work with amazing riders. Uh, for the last uh, 16 years, I had a partnership with Station Mile and at Beacon Hill, and that's been phenomenal for me because we complement each other. My business grew a lot. Um, yeah. I have a very nice relationship with Brion Gutal, who, by the way, has <laughs> her own business, very successful now, and we stay very connected, we work together. And then in 2011, you know, my business was actually at the time very thin, you know, not so many horses, not so many rides. I was competing myself, you know, and it was not, you know, booming, but um, the Omara family, you know, Tom and Lisa Omara had, you know, four children, three daughters and one son. Yeah. And I knew the daughters very well, but they never rode with me. And they had an 11-year-old son named TJ. And the mother called me while I was in Florida and says, you know, Max, uh, my name is Lisa Mara. I think we met. Yes, yes. I have my son, TJ. You know, he's 11 years old. And we would really like to see if we could set him up with you at your place. So he came, you know, he was a young boy. And, you know, I could tell that he really wanted to do the sport. You know, he was so, you know, at that young age, so... In, intriguing about what, what we did and you know he will stay at the barn for long hours and you know I don't know I don't have you know many male riders they're all pretty much females you know so for me it was it was very interesting I really enjoyed you know working with him and right. um, he you know he grew up and he matured in the barn and you know he <clears throat> made a real uh, you know he made a real uh, goal of him to to succeed at however he could. But I remember him being probably 13 years old and he told me he was going to win a final, which I found it really, you know, cool. You know, I mean, he was such a young kid, you know, and having all those dreams. So anyway, you know, he, I, I just had a, a, a little bit of a bond with him from an early age. You know, I had a really nice feeling. And then obviously he went on to, you know, win two finals, third in another one. I believe he got almost like, in two years, you know, he got like 12 ribbons in, in all finals together yeah. and uh, work on his, you know, jumper experience. And anyway, he um, he started working for me in the summers when he wasn't going to college in, you know, Kentucky University. And I just, uh, you know, at, at that point, I knew that he was special and he had all the same, you know, drive and, and, and desires that I had. So I felt myself very reflected on him and I started putting a lot of myself you know i was starting to stop competing at the high level so i was putting a lot of my goals and dreams into him little by little and he went to he went to europe for you know a short time to work with a friend of mine jos lansing which helped him a lot and then when he came he just decided to be committed and he became a key part of of the team you know alongside my my sister-in-law and my brother victor yeah, I actually, um, I juniored out the same year as TJ. Um, so, and he was, you did um, an incredible job training him. I mean, he was always a tough one to, to ride against. Yeah. He was absolutely incredible in the ring. And now 
you know, he's he's working full time for you. And I know that he just had some really great success at Devon, too, with a couple students, right? Yes, he does a wonderful job, you know, and at the beginning when he came, you know, obviously he's basically educated, you know, by our style and the way we do things and all that. So he adopted that and he's making his own. And but about two years ago, I had a, you know, a little bit of a medical, you know, uh, uh bypass by myself i had a little standby medically you know during indoors so i remember he was already working for me and it was the first year we had you know carly mccutcheon and a few other writers and i remember i called him i said listen i won't be able to attend and you know i was in the hospital and whatnot so i said you're gonna have to carry the flag and you'll look good and he did a fantastic job so i felt very comfortable to the fact of you know making him way more uh responsible and involved in what we do and he's mm -hmm. taking on from then you know and i feel very comfortable you know uh, allowing him to have a real participation and a spotlight in to what he's doing. You know, sometimes I find that, you know, some of the older trainers, you know, they feel a little bit, you know, skeptical about allowing that. And I understand why sometimes people go and come. And so it's a little bit of a difficult, you know, uh, uh, spot to give up that easy. You know, you, you work so hard for so many years to build and then you just put a young person in and sometimes they don't last too long. But mm -hmm. I don't know. I, I believe in him. He's like family to me. And, you know, he's, yeah. he's earning everything that he's getting. So, you know, you have to you have to allow young people to come just like I was allowed and, you know, give opportunities and promote. And, you know, his, his time is going to come and my time is going to end and I want him to be successful. Oh, that's amazing. And um, along with TJ, I mean, you have countless successful junior riders who came up, you know, through the equitation and now are incredible in their careers past that, whether it be amateur or professional. So what um, kind of inspired you to work with juniors, especially in the equitation? Well, you know, when I came in 99 was my first exposure to the equitation full time, obviously at one of the best barns, you know, in the country being Beacon Hill. And then they had the best writers. Yeah. So I, I fell in love. I fell in love mm -hmm. with what equitation is all about, what it represents and what it does for for the writers, you know. And yet I rode in all those international championships and all that for Argentina. Uh, I became a U.S. citizen in 2012. And, you know, very quickly after 2013, 14, I changed my nationality to the U.S. as a writer, even though I rode for another couple of years, that's all. But I have... Uh, been lucky enough to go to World Cup finals with several different riders. I believe this one I went, uh, it was my 11th one, but I've been there with <clears throat> Brion Gutal, who came through the equitation, you know, uh, Charlie Jacobs yeah. was a real fun one to go with, you know, because we're mm -hmm. a similar age and we had a lot of fun and he was, he's, he's a very, you know, fierceful competitor and he likes to do well. And then I've been there with Alessandro Bolp, he's one of my recent, you know, riders, which is also an amazing talent and, you know, she's making her way through Nations Cups and all that and has that drive and that passion to do well. So, you know, the reality is that the equitation, I believe, is the base to creating so many amazing riders for this country. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, being being in, in big Grand Prix, Nations Cup or World Cup Finals with some of these riders that I know have come through all that, you know, base, it, it just makes me proud. It makes me really happy. You know, I, I enjoy doing it. And moving from that, I'd like to talk a little bit about your training philosophy. So how would you describe your teaching style when you're working with your students? Well, you know, it's quite interesting because I always 
you know, it sounds cliche, but I always put the horses first. Like I think mm, about what course. the horses need, you know, and, and how to train them and then what the rider needs and try to come up with a good mix of what the rider needs and what the horse will need. And, you know, we don't overdo it. I don't believe in overdoing it. You know, I think if you train, for example, the open water and you do it two, three times, that's enough. You know, you don't need to do it more, even though if your horse is probably not doing it perfect, just, you know, I like to leave them with a good experience. Yeah. Um, I believe in flat work a lot. I think having the horse, you know, flatting completely in sync with the rider, is, it's probably 50% of, of having a successful round. Um, I do try to learn from, you know, other riders and trainers, you know, su successful ones that I respect. I looked, I asked, you know, I, I try to keep improving my, my training, you know, uh, ability in order to keep succeeding. You know, I never think I know everything. I just try to always learn from new devices, new exercises, new beats, new everything, new supplements, whatever they do to make, you know, things better. And when you are teaching students, do you ever find that there is one thing that a lot of them need to work on? You know, I think it is. And I think the, and I think probably most students for every other trainer would maybe feel the same way. And it's the nerves that, you know, translate into insecurities. You know, I always believe that everybody mm -hmm. has a good distance. The problem is that our thoughts and our feelings at the moment interfere with our body telling the horse what to do. You know, yeah. when you, if you're trotting, you know, up the street and you want to jump a little, you know, uh, uh, curve or a little something, you, you know how to measure your step to get there and jump it the right way. The problem is when we are on a horse, we have to measure their step and we have tools, whether our legs, you know, our, our seat, our hands, our voice, our body, all of that contributes into helping that horse get to the right step to get over the obstacle. And our brain, you know, or our emotions get in the way or our fears get in the way of, well, I'm not going to get there or that's spooky or this, you know, all those thoughts get to, to our body to do things that sometimes we don't even want them to do. And so we pull or we kick or we do something based on what we saw at that moment, but it's not that we don't have a distance. And do you have a, a favorite exercise to work on helping your students develop their eye defenses? Yes, I think it's Cavaletis. I love mm -hmm. Cavaletis. I do a lot of them. I place them in front of jams, you know, at a certain, you know, short distance, whether it's two strides, one or three, no more than that. But I think that Cavaletis is a very unintimidating, you know, obstacle. They're normally about 12 inches. They're small. So when you do so many of them all related with each other, you put, you know, one or two in front of some jams and then it, it creates a little bit of a good habit. I believe if you create good habits at home, they will translate into the ring. You, you create good habits and then you have those good habits when, when you don't even think about it. Yeah, and now I'm just thinking you have that um, wonderful article with the magazine. I think it was building confidence in, in jumpers or in jumper yes. riders. And I think yeah. you go through some of those exercises in that article as well. Yeah, and they're all small, you know. I just I don't mm -hmm. I don't overface the rider or the horse. I just like myself, you know, when I ride, I try to do small things to develop a good feel, a good habit and and confidence in what I'm doing. And then you have to little by little start increasing the height in order to feel comfortable with what, what you're doing. And trust me, that, you know, it eventually pays off. It takes a little bit of time, but it pays off. 
And you mentioned nerves before, you know, like you said, I think that's something that every rider struggles with. So um, for both yourself and your students, how do you handle nerves or how do you yourself handle nerves? And then how do you help your students work through that? Well, when I was, you know, riding, competing at the high level, I, I never found myself to be an overly nervous rider. I was, you know, I mean, I had doubts and questions about, you know, the bigger tracks that I've done and championships, but I was never nervous. You know, I got up to a gate and I knew I was there for a reason. I knew what I had to do and I knew that I had the skills to do it. So all I had to do is try to do it. You know, sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't, but but I was very comfortable with that. But, you know, being in the, you know, coaching side for quite a long time, you know, I have had riders with more or less nerves, but they all have some somewhere nerves, you know. And mm-hmm. what I do, I try to learn from the rider, you know. Sometimes the rider lets me know, but I try to learn from them what works for them. Some riders like to talk a lot, you know, we go over the course, we go over this, we go over that, and reinforce, you know, what what they know how to do, how to do. Like, in, in this case, I have a wonderful, you know, uh, young lady, Raleigh Heiler. She's been doing great lately. And for her, it really works to go over the course a lot of times, to talk about the plan, to repeat the plan, to talk about what not to do, what to prevent. And then on the other hand, similar age, you know, doing, you know, some big, big stuff too. Alessandra Volpi, she does not love to talk too much. You know, she likes to tell me a little. So you learn a little bit what works with each rider and you try to reinforce that, not try to establish your own way and, and make them, you know, force them into something that they're not comfortable. You have to you know, realize what works for them to calm their nerves or to make themselves feel better and then try to go that way. Do you ever get nervous as a trainer when you're ringside watching your students go in? Every every time, you know, I don't get, I don't get scared. I get nervous because of different reasons. If I'm moving. You want them to do well. Yes. If I'm moving a kid up, I just want them to do well. And if I have one of these, you know, riders that I have that are competing, you know, at the level that they are already, I want them to win. So that those are the nerves that I encounter. And I want to get into a little bit more of your competitive background. So um, can you just talk a little bit about some of the most meaningful successes or wins that you've had in your career? Well, I think, you know, not result related, but, you know, having the opportunity to jump a very nice, you know, world championship and finishing the top, you know, one third was what's something that really affected me in a good way, in a positive way. The same with the Pan American Games. You know, I had a few Nations Cup where we, you know, were top three. So that was very important to me. And then um, I was second in the Grand Prix of Devon in 2005, if I don't recall wrong. Um, Then, you know, I had a few very good classes, you know, with Churchill that that meant a lot for me. I was third, you know, with another horse name, you know, Cartier in the... um, uh, the gold cup and that that meant a lot to me too um mm-hmm. I, I think you know a lot of my career i wasn't necessarily you know a top winning rider I, I always had ribbons and i was a tiny bit more conservative than aggressively fast you know and as a coach i get a little bit more aggressive when when i know i have a rider that can be aggressive you know right and i know you you mentioned church road a couple of times now um with him, along with him, what are some other horses that have been influential in your career? Well, you know, the first horse I ever had was obviously in Argentina, and it was a thoroughbred of the track named Mariano. And he was a di- very difficult horse. He couldn't jump in the school in Arab. He allowed me to jump the first decent big tracks. They were 145s and 150s. 
but you know it felt with that horse very big and for me for the first time it felt very big i was in you know my you know early 20s when i came back from being in, in canada so that was quite nice then when i came to the states i had a the first real horse that I got was Church Road, as I mentioned, you know, a little bit by accident. And he stayed with me for almost four and a half years. And we did the biggest stuff I ever jumped in my life with him. And then mm-hmm. as I, you know, part ways with him, you know, Barney Ward called me, you know, I'm very, very, very close with McLean. And McLean mentioned to him that I was parting ways with my Grand Prix horse. So he called me, he says, I hear you don't have a horse anymore. I have a mare that you should sit on. So, you know, Long story short, I ended up with Ademain, which was at the time an eight-year-old Belgian mare, big mare. I was never used to ride a big, big horse. It was a big, mm-hmm. big, slow mare. But, you know, we did a, a, at least probably three Nations Cup with her and, you know, Palm Beach Circuit. And it was really a wonderful horse that then when she couldn't do the big stuff anymore, ended up doing, you know, you said finals with, you know, TJ O'Mara, with Mega McPherson, a few of my riders. Mm-hmm. So it, it was quite a, a wonderful horse. And then after her, I, you know, bought a horse for a student from Texas named Heads Up from Alexa Lowe. That original name was Cartier, and he actually jumps a few Grand Prix with me at the Hamptons, you know, Gold Cup, and it was a very nice horse that I ended up also selling to another student of mine. And then my last horse that I jumped, you know, among other horses that I'm probably forgetting, but my last horse was a horse named Bueno that belonged to Sidney Keith, and, you know, he was a little bit of a difficult horse, came from Germany, and I did some you know, Grand Prix with him, but it was a little bit towards the end of my career. And I had a big, you know, growing injury in 2012. So for the following four years until 2016, I struggled with that a lot, you know, and then it was time for me to not jump big anymore. And in your time competing, you know, this sport is very unpredictable. And sometimes we don't always win as much as we'd like, or we don't have as much success as we're hoping for. So how do you deal with, you know, not winning as much or not being as successful as you'd like? You know, I try to be quite understandable of situations. There's always somebody has to win and it can be always you. So the one thing I learned, you know, I like to watch a lot of the top, you know, sport people. They they always have a lesson to share. And I watch, you know, this wonderful coach, you know, giving an interview. And I honestly didn't know who he was, but he, he gave an interview. And, you know, they asked him if he thought that, you know, this season that they didn't win the, the championship was a failure, you know. And he said, look, Michael Jordan played 11 seasons in the NBA. and He only won six titles. Mm-hmm. Were the other mm-hmm. five failures? And he said they weren't. You know, uh, Tom Brady played about 12 seasons in, in yeah. the NFL. And he only won six titles. Was that a failure? So the reality, all those, you know, major successful sport people, they didn't win every single time they went to compete. And instead of, you know, taking that as a failure, they take it, they take that as a lesson, as a journey to the success. So whenever we're not winning, you know, as a team, I always think, okay, this has to be teaching us something. This is, you know, I don't like not to win, but I have to take the positive out of, you know, losing. And instead of calling it a failure, I call it, you know, the process to the win, the process to success. Mm-hmm. And back when you were competing, did you have any kind of big routine before your classes, like any kind of superstitions? Well, you know, funny, you ask, I think that we all have that a little bit, but mm-hmm. mine, I wear always, you know, the same, you know, bridges, the same, you know, underwear, the same shirt, the same socks, the same everything. Oh, yeah. I stopped for coffee at the same place and you know, I did 
everything the everything the same until I lost, and then I change. <laughs> yeah, I know. I can definitely relate to that. Yeah. <laughs> everything is the same until all of a sudden the that lucky shirt isn't lucky anymore, right? Yeah, I do the same now as a trainer. You know, like you know when TJ showing in the Grand Prix or or Bolpi or Heiler or whoever it is or my mm-hmm. junior kids. You know, I wear a certain watch, and you know. And when they win, I keep it, I keep it until we don't win anymore, then I change it. (laughs) And going into a couple of wrap-up questions here. So with you yourself as a rider and now as a trainer, what do you think has made you so successful? You know, I mean, I I feel flattered that you tell me I'm so successful, but to me, you know, (laughs) every day is a journey. And I think what leads to success is, you know, never giving up, hard work. You know, we all have bad times and bad times could do only two things. It could make you give up or it could make you try harder. And with my personality, I'm, I'm, I'm very afraid of not trying harder and, and I'm terrified of giving up. So that's not an option. So I, I think what accounts for the success we've had is, is just working very hard, never giving up, being humble and you know owning to your own mistakes and fixing them and what would you tell you know a young student you know you work with a lot of them a young student with really big aspirations who maybe is in a position where they don't see how they can get to where they want to be how would you encourage them you know to keep moving forward and let them know that you know they can get to where they want to be you know it's a very repeated you know phrase but mm-hmm. the reality is that we can all do anything we want to do. So what I would say is, you know, we live in the best country in the world. And I mean that, you know, I chose to come here. I wasn't born here. So I do believe that. Mm-hmm. And then uh, work very hard, work very hard, believe that you can do it and don't get anxious when you don't get there as you thought you should have gotten there. Just keep working and it will come. It will come. Everybody gets an opportunity everybody gets a chance is capitalizing on that and doing the best because if you do there's no other choice but you know getting to your goal and what would you say is the hardest part of the sport for you whether it be you know um emotionally or time wise you know it's such a time consuming sport or financially um what would you say is the hardest part you know, funny enough, I think the hardest part is when, you know, you have a tremendous, you know, horse and he comes to an end, you know, his career comes to an end. That's really hard for me yeah. because I, I cherish them a lot. I, I, I think without them, we wouldn't do anything. We can talk all day long, but without them, we wouldn't do it. So, you know, when, you know, I try to keep my horses for as long as I can, but, you know, some they have longer careers, some they have shorter when a great horse comes to the end of his career, I notice he's coming to the end of his career, that's very hard for me. And then on a much more maybe, you know, superficial way, I think, yeah, financially it's getting harder. You know, things are expensive and it's difficult to get to the best, you know, without spending money or having the funds. Mm-hmm. And what, looking back at that, you know, little boy who grew up in Argentina and then came to the States. If you had any advice for him, what would you tell him? Just do what you think you're doing right and keep doing it and never give up because they told you so many times that you shouldn't do this and that you wouldn't succeed. And here you are still doing it and 
somewhere succeeding here and there. And then last question before we wrap up here, is there anything that there that you would like to share that people don't know about you? Just a little tidbit. I don't know that many people know that I have a wonderful son, you know, Ramiro. He's 21 mm -hmm. years old. He's, a, he's basically the love of my life. He's a wonderful kid. You know, he lives with me now. You know, he spent a lot of his, you know, youth in Argentina. But uh, I don't think a lot of people know about that. And I really am proud of him. And I, you know, love that I have him. That's beautiful. Is he a writer? He's not a writer. He tried to write a little bit with TJ about three, four years ago, but <laughs> there was no future there. Yeah, it's um, not for all of us. <laughs> no, no, but he's a wonderful kid and I'm so proud of him. I'm blessed that, you know, he's my son. And then I know that you're in Michigan right now. I assume is that for Traverse City? Yes. Okay. So I, I was going to ask what's next for you. So beyond beyond Michigan for the next couple of weeks, what's on your radar? Well, we go home and we have about two weeks at home and then we do try on another two weeks. In the middle there, you know, McLean is writing uh, a mayor named Callas for, you know, a client of mine, the, the Rivers and mm -hmm. Beachwood Stables. And he chosen her to be his uh, nation's cap, you know, horse for Akin. So I'm going to try to shoot there to, you know, support him and be there with him because it's, it's a wonderful you know, venue and one of the best, if not the best show in the world. So I want to be there. Yeah. And then um, unofficially yet, I'm not sure, but uh, Alessandro Volpi is going to be competing probably in Falsterbo and Hickstead for the U.S. team. So I'm quite excited about that. I'm going to head over there to also help her and support her. Um, and then after that, you know, I think we have Southampton and Gold Cup and all the important stuff that comes in the fall, the end of the summer and fall. Yeah, I mean, surely indoor season is, is probably the height of your year, right? Yes, it is. <laughs> is there anything else that you would like to add about yourself or training or about Stonehenge that you would like people to know about? Well, you know, I mean, I think a lot of people know what we are about, you know, but I'm, I'm very proud of, you know, the team that we have. You know, I'm proud of everybody that, you know, rides with us and and. and the 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 work that we do in order to get to every show and do the best we can and you know i just you know feel very lucky and very happy that i am where i am well thank you again for taking the time to speak with me i really enjoyed our conversation and i'm excited for people to get to know you more by listening to this episode well thank you julia it was nice talking to you and, and thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to share myself with everybody Thanks for listening to this week's episode with Max Amaya, and a big thank you to the sponsor of this week's episode, Purina Animal Nutrition. Learn more at purinamills.com. You can subscribe to the Practical Horseman podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. While you're there, please rate and review the show. Also, tune into our mini-sode series, The Fod Pod, where you'll hear audio lessons from our favorite Practical Horseman On Demand clips. At Practical Horseman On Demand, you can enjoy hundreds of how-to videos and get insider access to exclusive interviews and lectures, slow-motion demonstrations, and step-by-step -step tutorials taught by top-level pros in the hunter, jumper, equitation, and eventing disciplines. When you tune into the FOD pod, listen closely for a promo code for 15% off your Practical Horseman On Demand subscription. Thanks again for listening to this week's episode. 
I'm Julia Murphy, and you've been listening to the Practical Horseman Podcast.